All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for your word. And we, Lord, we just love hearing from you. And so, Lord, today is our prayer that we would hear from you, not necessarily from me, but from you, from your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us and lead us. And just have your way with us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there, the last couple of weeks we've talked about uh, Paul is writing. This is really probably after the events of the book of Acts. Um, Timothy is basically the pastor, if you will, of the church in Ephesus. And um, uh, so Paul has, uh, is now writing this letter to Timothy, Timothy's young pastor, and uh, you know there's some indication from the scripture that he's probably a little bit timid. Maybe he's young. Maybe he, you know, he's just kind of, um, you know, um, not necessarily bold and super confident and all that sort of thing, which is actually probably a good good place to be. But anyway, he needs some instruction, and Paul's given it to him. Um, as background, we recall on Paul's third missionary journey, uh, when he was speaking to these, uh, the elders of this church in Ephesus, he gathered them together, chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. He said to them, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. And so it appears from the context that some of that has already happened, that there's some stuff going on in the church, and Paul is writing to Timothy to sort of set things in order um, and sort of structure the church. And that's super helpful for us because it allows us as uh, a New Testament church, uh, you know, different culture and all that, but biblical principles are biblical principles. And as a New Testament church, it gives us sort of some guidelines that we can look to for sort of how to do church. And, um, you know, we can gather and we can sing worship songs, we can pray, we can teach through the Word, but, you know, along the way there needs to be some sort of um, structure, if you will. And so um, that's what really First and Second Timothy and Titus are all about, and so um, as we get into chapter three, we start seeing some uh, some principles regarding church leaders and some of their qualifications and and all of that. But I thought of my I thought it might be helpful, and if you bear with me, um, uh, some well Nate um, sometimes teases me, you know, like you know your intros go for like twenty minutes, and I said, yeah, I know. You got a problem with that? And, and so, um, I'm just going to tell you right straight up, uh, I, think this, I think this chapter 3 calls for uh, sort of a pause and a parenthetical intro. Is that fair? Thank you, Ryan Myers, for the tape. That one person was Ryan Myers. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, for everybody else, is that fair if we do a little intro? Yeah, good, good. Super fair. So... Um, and the reality is, you know, church government is a thing, right? We're a group of people. We need to, you know, have some sense of order, and yet not too much order, not too little order. You know, how does that work, and how do, how do these things roll out? And I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware, <laughs> um, probably more than I ought to be, but I'm acutely aware 
that we all have different church backgrounds in many ways, right? There's a wide range of church backgrounds represented in this room, and I hope you catch my, my vibe by now. I want that. I am thankful for that. I applaud that, and I, I, I never wanted, you know, I, I never want to be like the homeschool church, right? Or the, frankly, uh, you know, whatever, pick your demographic. The, the church that parks on this particular doctrine, the church that, that does this, the, the church that's like, you know, purifies itself down to, down to nothing, basically, which so often happens, right? I want it to be like the body of Christ. And we've talked about this, and, and so I'm sorry if it sounds like, uh, you know, I go through these seasons. If you're new here, you'll catch this. You've already caught this. But, um, you know, I go through these seasons where there are, there are concepts, as we read through the Word, there are concepts that kind of are just bathing in my heart. And right now, what's bathing in my heart, frankly, is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the body of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ. We're, you know, some people are a little more hand-like, and some people are a little more ear-like, and some people are a little more nose-like, and that's all great. It's actually necessary. And as Paul says, if everybody were a hand or everybody were an eye, where would be the rest of the functioning of the body? And so we need to value the parts that aren't quite like us, okay? And so church government is one of those things that I, you know, a lot of people in this room have been a part of leadership in other churches or, you know, whatever your background is, have some kind of like, we'll say experience with church government stuff. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Still fair. I navigated a couple minutes and I'm still fair. So I like that. And so, you know, I thought about this. Before we dive into uh, qualifications of overseers in chapter 3, I want to do a little overview on church government, okay? And what I want to do is ask the question, what would church government look like if all we had was a Bible? (sighs) You mean, like, not grandma saying this is how we always did it? No, that's exactly what I mean. What if all we had was a Bible? And we had to figure out how to navigate as a body of believers. Is that all right? So here we go. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. With this, I think we need to look at sort of what I think of as the history of church government. And maybe some different types of church government. And then finally, kind of what how we do church government and why, okay? So, a little history lesson. Acts chapter 2, starting verse 1. When you're there, say there. All right. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what you have here is the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, very familiar scripture to many of us. And Jesus had actually told them before he ascended, go up there, hang out, and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And really 
don't make any major moves until then, right? Because you need the filling of the Holy Spirit to uh, do what you need to do. And so this was the time of Pentecost. It was one of the Jewish feasts. People were gathered there in Jerusalem from all over, people from different, uh, different native tongues, different lands, different regions. And what happened was, as these disciples um, got filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in tongues of the other languages, tongues that they didn't learn, that they hadn't been necessarily taught, but these other people, and we won't read through all of it just for the sake of time, but these other people in the area recognize, hey, they're praising the Lord in our language. And so what you have is really, at that point then, Peter, you know, and some skeptics said, hey, these guys are drunk and, you know, all that. Peter stands up and gives a beautiful sermon that we won't read, but it's a beautiful sermon, and he, uh, and then it's concluded with Peter saying, uh, repent, chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so what you have is the birth of the church, right? Some people, Bible people call it the church age uh, began uh, in Acts chapter 2. We see it as when the Holy Spirit came, Jesus is, is now in heaven, and the Holy Spirit came, filled these, these folks, and now all of a sudden you got a gathering of 3,000 people, okay? Now, they didn't necessarily appear to need church government at that time because they were all in one what? A court. You know, if America had 300, however many there are, 300 million Americans all in one accord, we'd get by without government right? That'd be awesome. Wait for the millennium. Jesus on the throne, Satan bound, right? It's going to be however many people in one accord, right? It's going to be awesome. But until then, you know, these guys were in one accord. That was all good. And then, you know, a little time goes on. Flip over to Acts chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, so it continues to grow, the church is growing, that's good. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, these were some of the Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So, see what we have now? We've got a problem. We've got, and we even maybe have a little bit of a, of a you know, we never do this in our day and age. Like, we don't group people and label them, right? Like, we don't use terms like Republican or Democrat or, or Baptist or, or Charismatic. We don't do that kind of stuff, right? They did. They did. And so what you got now is the Hebrews, that's the Jewish uh, Christians, by the Hellenists, the Greeks, you're sliding, you're kind of you're letting the, I notice that you're, you guys seem to be taking care of all your, your Jewish widows, but the Greek widows seem like they're getting slighted a little bit right? Now we're getting into a little more normal life, right? So they're like, all right. So then the 12, this is the original 12 disciples, uh, plus Matthias, um, 
Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they, set apost- whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. All right? So this is really the first sort of act of church government, if you will. Right? Now, we don't see a bunch of founding fathers gathering around and drawing up a constitution. We see a group of people in one accord. It gets big enough that now there's maybe two or three accords, right? And we got potential problem, and we need to establish a little bit of structure to deal with this potential problem and sort of head it off at the pass. Fair enough? That's reasonable. And so that's what they did. Uh, This was really, you know, there was a need that arose, and so they responded to the need. And that's really how uh, a healthy um, governing body does. You know, it was... was, um, you know, the apostles uh, were steadfast to devote themselves to the Word of God and, and to prayer. That's good. There's nothing wrong with uh, serving tables. There's nothing menial about serving tables. I'll get to more of that in a bit. But they just needed to do what they were going to do, and, you know, they needed other people to do uh, these other jobs. And so that was, a, that was a, a thing that needed to be done. And it was all peaceable because it pleased the whole multitude. And they prayed, and it all seemed to be directed by the Lord. That's, that's cool. Turn over to Acts chapter 14. So, you know, by this time, a few things have happened. Uh, Paul's on his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have been sent out from the city of Antioch, which is just a little bit north of Jerusalem. And uh, so, just a passing sort of uh, reference in... in uh, Chapter 14 of of Acts, uh, look at verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord whom they had believed. And so now you see, it's not really like front page news in the scripture necessarily, but, you know, we kind of get this idea that Paul and Barnabas are going through these cities, they're establishing churches, and in these churches they're appointing some sort of leadership structure over these churches. It's reasonable, right? Like somebody's got to stand here. And somebody's got to pay the bills, and somebody's got to do this and do that, and somebody's got to organize it a little bit, and hopefully the Lord organizes all of it ultimately, but there's got to be a little bit of these things going on. So, Paul's appointing uh, leaders in every church. Now, look at verse chapter 15. Now, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So first of all, just so you don't get confused, uh, this always kind of comes up. Jerusalem is always up because it's topographically up, even though it's south of Antioch. Fair enough? We're used to looking at a map, right? And north is up. Well, in the Bible, Jerusalem is always up. 
So they're going down to Antioch. And so what happens is Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. Some of the, uh, the brethren from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's, by the way, sort of, think about this, Jerusalem's the hotbed of Jewish culture, right? So what the church in Jerusalem is, is largely a bunch of Jewish people that became Christians, came to Jesus. Well, they wanted to sort of hold on to some of their Jewish uh, identity, if you will, and so they're sending word out to these, some of these other Gentile places, because by this time, Paul and Barnabas have gone on their first missionary journey, preached to all these Gentile places all over, you know, all over uh, uh, Asia Minor, and all these people are getting saved. Now you've got a bunch of Gentile Christians running around. Well, not to get awkward, but they're all uncircumcised. Okay? And so... The Jewish Christians are like, that's awesome if you want to believe in Jesus, as long as you're circumcised, right? Well, now we've got an issue, yeah. right? Not only do we have an issue in the church, we've got an issue in the churches. You get the idea? Yeah. We need government, right? So what happens is, it's called the Jerusalem Council. These guys all gather together. Again, we won't read it in the interest of time. We'll just talk about it longer than it would have taken to read it. But um, <laughs> that's how it always works, right? Uh, but anyway, so uh, they gather at Jerusalem, and you kind of get this vibe of this meeting, and some guy gets up and stands here, and some guy gets up and stands here, and you kind of get the vibe that James seems to be the boss of this whole thing, okay? And yeah, and when he speaks, it's kind of like a little bit like uh, everybody listens, and they finally decide that, long story short, no, you don't have to uh, be circumcised to be saved. And so they sent the word out, you know, through Paul and Barnabas back up to Antioch, or back down to Antioch, and to all these, you know, regions, all these churches, hey, spread the word, you know, if you're a Gentile and you get saved, you don't have to become circumcised, right? And so what you have here is sort of the next level of government, as we see historically in the book of Acts, and that is this Jerusalem council kind of uh, gives some, some guidance, if you will, to all the rest of the churches right? And so that's kind of how church government works. And so, you know, these are just biblical examples. Again, I say, if, I, if all we had were the scripture, we'd say, well, that seems like, sure, whatever. Um, but we need some government to exist because things come up, okay? Things come up. And if we have no government, we call that chaos. If we have too much government, we call that restrictive and legalistic and frankly doesn't leave much room for the Holy Spirit to lead. All right? So that's your two, you know, that's your two extremes that you want to avoid. And so, you know, think about it in your day and age, right? We're all citizens of the United States of America, right? Okay, good, good. So we might have like an issue we had to deal with here for a second. Um, but, but, uh, you know, do we have police in Madison, Indiana? Yes. Now, ideally, that shouldn't impact our lives. Right? Right? You drive the speed limit. You do what you're supposed to. You're just, you know, the policeman's your friend. Right? You're thankful that your policeman is there. Right? No big deal. And so government exists, really. I think of this like in the church. Government should be there. 
what we almost shouldn't notice, right? Does that make sense? And so that's kind of how we roll here, and I'll go through some of this a little bit. We do not want to limit the work of God for the sake of our man-made structure. That's one of my greatest fears. I don't want to limit the work of God for my man-made structure. And honestly, as the church grows, and you know, we've pointed out the last couple weeks, church has been growing. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. Um, I want us to be a body that just functions like a body, right? And, and again, I go back to this, the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, the human body. The human body, all those cells, all your cells right now, right? Except the ones that are sleeping. No, all, this, all your cells right now are doing totally what they should be doing, right? And so that's how it kind of works together. So, in our modern day, so fast forward from the book of Acts to, you know, modern day, we've got churches all over the place. We've got all different kinds of examples of church government. And so, um, you know, how do we do that? Again, if all we had was the scripture, how does that line up with what we see of the choices that we have? And, and so, you know, one of the problems we have as Americans is we have the Constitution, right? And we have nine people that we call Supreme Court justices. Their job is to basically study that Constitution and make sure everything that's done is consistent with that Constitution, right? We have this, like, bedrock of, of what we as a society have collectively uh, agreed upon as the things we're going to hold to, right? Now, we'll just stop that conversation there, okay? But for us... The scripture really doesn't have a specified, this is your constitution of church government. All right? We got some ideas and some principles. I mean, even just those things I read through the book of Acts are, are about as close as we see historically, right? And we would agree those were pretty specific to those situations and doesn't necessarily give us precedent to to, you know, establish any kind of new constitution. And, and so how does all that work? Well, in terms of Bible leaders, let's put it this way. In terms of leaders in the New Testament, the Bible gives us two words. One of them we're going to read here in a minute. It's called episkopos. It's translated bishop. All right? The Bible gives us another word for elder that's called presbyteros. We translate it most often elder. Now, episkopos, does that sound like anything? Episcopal, right? So we get our Episcopalian denomination from this word episkopos, right? You guys did awesome at that one. Let's try again. <laughs> Presbyteros. Do we get any word that might come from that? Presbyterian, Presbyterian church, right? And so, you know, the, the Presbyteros word is, is, the, is elders. Well, the Presbyterian model of leadership is... is um, you know, oftentimes sort of a group of elders that lead the church. Fair enough? And the Episcopalian type of leadership is, is more uh, the bishop leads the church. The problem with bishop is we think of the bishop, we have kind of an image when we think of bishop, right? Like the robe and the posture and the whole nine yards, right? Yeah. Well, that ain't me, all right? But I think biblically, this is interesting, Vine's Expository Dictionary, which is a great resource, says this. It says, Presbyteros, an elder, 
is really another term for the same person as episkopos, the bishop or the overseer. The episkopos is the noun. The presbyteros is an adjective, right? Now, I don't want to be a grammar snob, but an adjective just sort of describes the person. And, and so really, according to Vine's dictionary, it just means elder, older, spiritually older, mature, that sort of thing. It's sort of a description of the guy, okay? And we did point out last week it was the guy, okay? Um, that's, that was last week. It was a man, okay? Um, so the elder is the description of kind of, he should be a mature person, fair enough? The bishop is sort of the office that he, uh, that he operates in. And the word pastor, we know, is a word also used in Scripture, is a word that just means shepherd, okay? So what do you have? you got a guy who's hopefully mature, who stands in this place of leadership and feeds the sheep and tends the sheep. As Jesus said in John 21, you've heard me say this before, best pastor's conference ever, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, right? That's what a pastor does. That's what a pastor should do. And so, um, so then the question comes, Oh, there's another type of church government that I'll just say parenthetically that is alive and well today, and that is the congregational ruled government, where basically it's like a democracy because we're Americans, we like democracy. It's basically like a democracy, um, and uh, the, everybody sort of has membership and everybody has a vote, and the pastor, you may not like, just don't anybody get mad, okay? Can I just say... We're on two or three weeks now in a row of me saying, please don't get mad, but, um, but don't get mad. Um, in much of the congregational ruled churches, the pastor is basically a hireling, okay? The pastor is hired by the congregation, and, um, and that creates its own issues, okay? And so, in a sense, as it plays out in modern day, you either have sort of the bishop-led church or the congregational-led church, all right? Now, both types of church government involve human beings, right? Human beings are what? Romans chapter 3. Sinners, right? I am, you are, we all are, right? Sinners saved by grace, okay? So we have to identify, I think it's helpful to identify, what are the pitfalls of either one? Well, the pitfall of a congregational-led church where the pastor's a hireling is it easily becomes very political, Right? The higher pastor is pretty much aware of who gives how much, and, and you, know, um, you know, this guy gives, I'm not pointing anybody in particular, this, I'll just point over here, the guy that plays the keyboard right here, <laughs> you know, so this guy gives a lot of money, but I know he's got a wife and three girlfriends, right, so when the scripture talks about adultery, right, that's how that, that's the danger of that, Okay. The danger of the bishop-led church exclusively is if the bishop gets weird, now all of a sudden we'd like to rein him in a little bit. Does that make sense? And so you can all rest easy. I'll never get weird. Simple as that. That's all in the problem. Now, so the reality is for us, we have a bishop-led church, right? 
um, uh, I'll say an overseer-led church because I don't like that word bishop, but Scripture translates it bishop. That's okay. Um, but with a very small board, board of elders, who I think fit these qualifications that we're going to read about. And uh, they, do, they do two things. Well, they do more than two things, but a couple of things primarily. Number one, they uh, sort of help hold me accountable and kind of help, you know, we kind of work as a team and not as an individual person, okay? That's one. The other thing is we are a part, and it's important that I think you all know this, we are a part of a family of churches, uh, according to the Calvary, Calvary Chapel Association of Churches, and uh, we are a part of that, and there's some pretty loose, admittedly, structure there. But the reality is, uh, kind of like this Jerusalem Council, if something came up with me, if I did get weird and I wanted to like be unrepentant in my weirdness, um, the guys on the board here um, kind of know that that system is in place and there are people they can call and, and I can be reined in. I have a higher authority in a sense uh, as a Calvary Chapel pastor um, to not get weird. With that, I have a lot of freedom because I want to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, God is the one that leads this church. And my job is to not politicize you, but my job is to hear from God, to, you know, oftentimes when things come up, like what we read about earlier, and it pleased the multitude, right? If I hear from God that, you know, we need to do something crazy, it's either, okay, sometimes God does that, or, you know, I'm, you guys might help me discern that. The guys on the board might help me discern that. But it's my job to hear from God and sort of lead, lead the flock, okay? And um, beyond that, I really, this is probably the one thing, the take-home I want for all of us to, to catch. I really, really, really don't like titles and positions. They make things weird. Titles and positions make things weird. Why? Because one position then some, somehow seems higher than another position, right? If you're the chairman of something or the associate chairman of something, we know that the associate chairman of something is, is less important somehow. And it's less, and, and, and so it just really doesn't fit with, the, with how God describes it in the body. Okay? Can I give you my favorite, and some of you have heard me say this before, my favorite example of kind of how I think of this roles, right? Again, we won't go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but, or chapter 12, but you recall in that chapter, we've read this a, a couple times recently, Paul says, you know, it's those least presentable parts that God highly values, right? And I want us to notice that. I, I want to take that very, very seriously. And so I don't like titles. I don't like labels. I don't like job assignments with, uh, you know, with a spotlight. I don't like any of that because I think it just makes us all tend to get too weird. And I think it, it, I think it sort of undermines the tremendous value that God places on each and every cell in the body of Christ. Please, if you hear nothing else today, please hear that. Every single cell in the body of Christ has infinite value. And I will tell you this, more than one person 
in the body of Christ has stumbled or gotten weird because he's striving for a position. More than one person in the body of Christ has gotten weird or in trouble because he strives for a position. And, um, and frankly, if there's something that I'll try to protect this flock from because I feel like that's my God-ordained job and I feel like I'm accountable to him for it, uh, that's my job to protect the flock from that. And so, that's how it rolls. Let me tell you a good, uh, just my, my, my favorite little metaphor. Body of Christ, right? Right? I'm a doctor in my, other, in my other part of my life, right? It's this part of my life, but it's also, you know, they kind of go together like this. I'm a doctor, okay? We all have, I know there's some medical people in the room, so I don't want to mess it up, okay? So you guys check me on this, right? We all have blood in our veins and our arteries and our capillaries, if you want to get technical, right? You guys have blood? Is that fair that we have blood? Good, that's fair. Now, in our blood... We have some proteins and stuff that, you know, we call serum. But we got cells, basically three types of blood cells, yeah. right? Oh, we do have a medical person in the room. It's awesome. <laughs> we have red cells, white cells, and platelets. Everybody with me? Yeah. All right, let's break them down. Now, right now, before I just said this, were you thinking about any of those cells? No. They're just doing their job. Quietly. They're quietly doing their job. Of those, I'm going to say white cells. You've got some subgroupings, right? What are they? Um, you've got the neutrophils, right? Neutrophils, nurses, come on. You've got basophils. You've got eosinophils. You've got lymphocytes. I think that's all I can't remember. You've got lymphocytes. Fair enough? Did I miss any? No. <laughs> so in your, in your blood, you got three types of blood cells. One of those is white blood cells. Of the white blood cells, one of those types is lymphocytes. Fair enough? You got more than one kind of lymphocyte. You got B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes. Did you know that? You do now. Of the T lymphocytes, you got more than one kind of T lymphocyte. Did you know that? You got T helpers, T natural killers, and T suppressors. I think that's all. T helpers. You know what happens if you don't have any T helper cells? Anybody know? Anybody know what the disease is called? AIDS. The HIV virus attacks... T helper cells, right? Now, I like this picture of the body of Christ, right? Because we all want to be a brain or a heart or a liver, right? Right? Nobody says, T helper cell, sign me up, man. No notoriety for the T helper cell, no big label. No big budget, no big spotlight for the T helper cell. But if you miss it, you miss it. Right? It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. So we don't really identify brains and hearts and livers. Right? Because everybody's at least as valuable as a T helper cell. 
Fair enough? Okay. I think we covered it. Verse 1. Nate this morning says, uh, yeah, we'll be teaching uh, in, this, in the kids' class. I'm like, praise the Lord. <laughs> this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. All right? First of all, keep in mind, this is a good work. This is a good work. It's not a good gig. It's not an opportunity for spotlight. It's a good work. It's, an, it's not an obligation. It's a good work. And let me just say as we go through here, we're talking about the position of a bishop, we're gonna, and then in a minute we're going to talk about the position of a deacon. So these are specific qualifications for people that fill that role. These should be qualifications for me, frankly, or for other, other folks that I'd say are on the board. Uh, these are qualifications for me. But they're also beautiful principles for all of us because we're all ministers. Everyone in the room that's a believer in Jesus Christ is a minister. I hope I've emphasized that. So these are great principles, not just for the position of bishop, but for ministers. So if he desires a position of bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. So that's a list. Blameless. Does that mean perfect? How many pastors would there be in America today if they had to be perfectly blameless? No. The Greek word means basically an accusation won't stick. And let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. I've been accused of stuff over the years. We all get accusations. I'd say I've been falsely accused of things over the years. And it's important that the application, that the that the accusation, especially in terms of moral conduct, it's important that that does not stick. And uh, thankfully, those things usually play themselves out. If you're falsely accused, uh, parenthetically, if you're ever falsely accused of something, don't spend a lot of energy defending yourself, right? Maybe say it once, say what needs to be said, and and then go underground, frankly and let God work it out. And I can tell you this, he'll work it out with much better precision than you will by your many words. And that's played out more than once in in history. So he must be blameless. He needs to be the husband of one wife. Now, polygamy was common in that culture, so this was addressed. So he must have one wife. Now, in our society, all right, no, not a lot of polygamy in our society. That's cool. Okay. Some take this to mean that he's never to be a divorced person should never be a bishop. Okay. Now, I, won't, I wouldn't argue with anybody over that. I personally think that's not necessarily the application of this, specifically Paul. Okay. Paul, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, he was a Pharisee. In order to be a Pharisee, he would have had to have been married. We also know in 1 Corinthians, he talks about singleness, and he basically identifies himself as single. So most commentators and historians kind of put that together, that basically when Paul got saved, his wife said, I'm out of here. Okay? So that's Paul's condition, right? 
So would Paul be qualified to be an elder as, based on what we know of him or to be a bishop? Yeah, I think Paul could oversee a church quite nicely, right? And so, um, and so you know, the idea of, of, you know, you can't have been divorced or anything like that probably, um, in my opinion, is a little bit out of context. What it does mean is this. The idea of this Greek word, the husband of one wife, or this, this phrase, is that he's a one-woman kind of a guy. This does play out in today. He's a one-woman kind of a guy. Now, that can play out in lots of ways that we won't go into because we've got generations here. But suffice to say, my wife needs to not compete with anyone for my attention. I say that serious. I don't say that as a perfect man, but I say it as a biblical standard that we need to hold up. Can you hear me on this, men? Hear me on this, men. If you're married, your wife needs to know that you're a one-woman man. Period. And that is serious. Bishop must be blameless. Must be a husband of one wife. He must be temperate. The King James says vigilant. I like that. Temperate, sober-minded. Vigilant, sober-minded. means he needs to be determined to be a man of self-control. Sober-minded, diligent, purposeful, intentional. You know, in my life, uh, just, I'm, I'm honestly so thankful for all the ways the Lord has blessed me. But I am, and I'll be careful here, I am determined I mean, do I have leisure time? Yeah, I have leisure time. But do I live for leisure time? No. If I have leisure time, it's going to be intentional, right? If I, build a, if I'm, if I have leisure time, I want to be well, building a snowman with my grandkids. Had a killer snowman contest, and we won, right? If I have leisure time, I want to be doing that. I don't want to be hanging out. Killing time? Killing life? You know, partly because I'm a doctor, I can just tell you this. I am aware every, every week that this life is brief. This, like, this life is like a game of musical chairs. And one day, the music stops. I am very aware of that. And so I got no latitude for wasting time, wasting energy. It has to be intentional, right? Do I stumble in that? Yeah, I'm holding up the, the principles here, okay? But I want to be intentional, deliberate, vigilant, sober-minded, of good behavior. All right. Our actions need to support what we say. Good behavior. Hospitable. Hospitable is particularly important in that culture. I think it's important today. It's a part of being others-focused. Being others-focused, hospitality is part of that. Able to teach. Now, there are lots of ways to teach. You know, again, you know, we're all ministers. You may not teach like this standing here, but you teach in your lives, in your actions, in what you do, your example. And those lessons, honestly, are very often more powerful than any sermon. But specific to the bishop, he should be able to know God's word well enough to teach it. All right? 
not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. All right, so we got a few more. All right, not given to wine. Now, I'm going to tell you my conviction. Is that all right? Can I tell you my conviction? Should a pastor ever drink? No. No. Specifically, deacons, if you look at uh, verse 8, deacons are to not be given to much wine. So it seems like the Lord in His wisdom here in the Scripture makes a distinction, right? That the deacon can maybe have a little wine, but he specific, specifically says for the elder, for the bishop, not given to wine. Now, obviously I'm aware that may be controversial, um, but I think there's a principle here. A couple things. Number one, think of it like this. We live in a small town, right? I don't want somebody, you know, how many big 15-passenger silver Chevy vans are there in town? Right? How many are there? Maybe one or two or three, right? And you all know that one of them belongs to who? Me, right? So you see that big Chevy van parked out in front of the liquor store? You're like, cool. He's a hipster kind of dude, right? Maybe you struggle with alcohol and you see that 15-passenger van out there. You might say, it's okay for him. I wonder if it's okay for me. Right? That happens. That happens. I've seen the damage done from alcohol in my family, in my patients, in my friends, in this church. And it is not pretty. It is not pretty. And I don't want to go near it. I don't want to go near it. Now, that may not be your conviction, and I hope you know by now, I'm just reading the Word and talking about it. So I'm telling you my conviction. You know, the other thing, Nate and I were talking about this this week, it's interesting. Nate has awesome insights, by the way, uh, at times. Well, <laughs> that didn't come out right, did it? All the time. Every last insight is awesome. But anyway, you know, he said this verse, Ephesians 5.18, says, uh, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He and I were talking, and he said, you know, he said what's interesting is the things that people would, get, would drink alcohol for are the things that really the Holy Spirit ought to be filling. Think about that. Right? You know, sometimes people drink to find love in all the wrong places. Sometimes people drink for, let's say, joy, right? Some people drink just, you know, it's been a long day. I just need a little peace. Love, joy, peace. I got a better alternative. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians says. And so, again, you can call me a, is it teetotal or is that the word? You can call me one of those. But I think that 
Number one, I'm supposed to be an example. You know, James tells me that uh, be careful if you teach the word because you're going to be held to a higher standard. I'll take that. But I've also seen a lot of damage. I've seen tons of damage. I don't play with fire. I don't like to play with fire. There's nothing fun about playing with fire. So I don't want to do it. So, he's not given to wine. He's not violent. The King James says, a striker. I like that. <laughs> I don't go around punching people, all right? Everybody good? So I'm okay to lead the church that way because I don't punch anybody. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh, not greedy for money. King James says, not greedy for filthy lucre. I like that. You know, some money in this world is filthy. Some money's filthy. Money obtained by manipulation is filthy. It's dirty money. Money that's obtained by, well, since I've already offended most people in the last two weeks, money offended by gambling, I think is dirty. Money that's obtained by cutting corners on integrity is dirty. And again, I don't want to be a part of that. I want God to bless my life. You get the vibe here? I'm not saying if, you know, if you... There's just a principle. There's just a principle of walking in the favor of the Lord that I... It's like I can't adequately describe it. Probably never will. But there's something about the favor of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord. It's not like you never have problems. But it's just like there's just something sweet that you know the Lord has taken care of you. And God is our provider. And God takes care of us. And so I don't want to do anything that would step me outside of that sweet spot of the Lord's favor. So I don't want dirty money. I'll take clean money, but I don't want dirty money. Right? Gentle. He's not greedy for money, <clears throat> but he's gentle. Can I tell you this, men? We were talking uh, with some folks yesterday about a guy who's a famous pastor who's now kind of crashed. He was famous for not being gentle. He was famous for not being gentle. We have this idea sometimes in church that a real man is the opposite of a sissy. A mamby-pamby dude, right? A mamby-pamby, you know, gentleness is for mamby-pamby dudes, right? Real men cuss and drink beer and yell at people. Really? You know, gentleness, can I tell you this? Philippians says, let your gentleness be known to all men. By the way, fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Gentleness has sort of lost favor in our society of menhood. Well, I think I'll say it just for clarity. <clears throat> There's a thing last, a few years ago came out, act like men. Four or five of these guys, right? Now, 
some of those guys, I still love everything they do. But there was just a, <clears throat> in hindsight, uh, one or two of them was not gentle. And that was their downfall. I'm not judging. I don't know all the details. But I know that God highly values what we call a gentleman. And it's okay to be a gentleman. There's nothing wimpy about that. He's not quarrelsome. He doesn't argue all the time, right? He wants to edify others. He wants to be a peacemaker. He's not covetous. Now, covetous is similar to not greedy for money, except in this case, he's not greedy for your money or your stuff or your cool toy or your whatever, right? He's not covetous. We need to be very careful about covetousness. We live in a very covetous society. Please don't, don't miss it. Advertising, modern media is geared, is, is geared to tempt us into covetousness, among other things. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So a lot of people go to this like, you know, the, the children of a pastor ought to be perfect, right? Well, mine are, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, God, who's, the, who's the greatest father in all of humanity? God. What did God's children do? They rebelled. They rebelled. Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, Trace and I always go to this. I think it's chapter 1. Is that right? Isaiah chapter 1. God gives this great sort of sort of review. He's like, I loved you like a loving father, but you rebelled. So a pastor, a bishop, an overseer, an elder needs to know how to lead his family in godliness. And in general, he needs to lead his family in godliness. But that doesn't mean the children are perfect. I don't want that kind of pressure on my children, frankly. Uh, what it means is we move as a family and we lead in godliness. And so that's, and, and, and honestly, I think that, uh, you know, the fact that, the fact that the fatherhood or the, the leader of the home is a requirement to be a leader in the church tells me that that's more important, right? Too often, we want to lead the church and leave the family behind. And we don't want to do that. We don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want anybody to do that in their ministry. We are deliberate in this church. One thing, hope it's not too much of a tangent. I don't want to give anybody so many jobs and duties in the church that they're torn between, do I serve my church or do I serve my family? That should never happen. The church should uphold the family. The church should be a resource for the family, not a competitor with the family. And by the way, the family, healthy families, I love what we have here. Healthy families are what make a healthy church, right? Fits like a glove, right? But the family shouldn't compete with the church, or the church shouldn't compete with the family. So, 
Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So the reality is, there is a position of pride in any kind of in any kind of in any kind of uh, visible position. There's a temptation for pride, right? I'm standing here. You know, when we're all done, you guys are all going to say that was awesome. Now that I think of it, you're awesome, right? There's always that temptation, right? Why do I talk? Because so I can hear everybody say I'm awesome. No, that's not what I want to do. But a novice, a person that's a new Christian, a new believer, might fall into that, that temptation, right? We all fall into that temptation. Um, but one way to guard against it is to not have a novice uh, lead a church. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So, a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. I love this town. You know one of the things I love about this town? And I mean this with all sincerity. I love the pastors in this town. I know many of them. And honestly, they're awesome guys. And, uh, you know, lots of different styles of church, lots of different burdens that they carry, but I've, I've, I've hung with a lot of them. And they're just cool guys in our community just trying to trying to lead the families lead the lead the churches do what they do do it faithfully we're blessed as a community and um, it's healthy for a church leader to have a good reputation in the community years ago when i lived up in indianapolis you know um in my doctor job up there. You know, Christian people are always looking for a Christian doctor. You ever notice that? You may not. I do. Pastors got to have a Christian doctor, right? And I can tell you, there were, when, I, when I lived up in Indianapolis, I had four or five pastors that were patients of mine from all different denominations. And, you know, more often than not, I had to apologize to my staff and to my doctor partners for the behavior of those pastors. Let that sink in for a minute. I had to apologize for their behavior. Why? Because pastors are always the first guy in line. They're the guy with the personalized curb. They're the guy that, you know, people say you're awesome. And when you're just a, a Joe in a doctor's office, you know, you'll, you, then if you're not getting that automatic respect and notoriety, you need to sort of demand it a little bit. And I was embarrassed. I, I mean, there were more than once that, now, you talk about awkward conversation. I mean, you know, we've had awkward conversations, right? An awkward conversation is the doctor telling the pastor, you're embarrassing me. Right? But I've done it. I've done it. That's why I left town. Now I live here. <laughs> he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and snare of the devil. Let's stop there. Is that right? I don't want to rush through the rest of it. Is that right? 
Now, deacons is somewhat repetition, repetition of elders, but anyway, I just want to, I want to I let this sink in a little bit. Is that fair? So, we got a church government, right? Because we have to. Because there's a bunch of people and we all kind of got to move in the same direction, right? No, no more complicated than that. But everybody is a vital part of this, regardless of position. I love, there's a, there's a, a friend of mine in town. He's a retired judge. If I told you your name, you'd, you'd all probably know who he is. Uh, when he retired, I said, how you doing? He said, I got a promotion. I said, oh yeah? He said, now I'm a citizen. Right? I like that. Right? I like that. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. There's all of us and there's the Lord. Now within that, we all have kind of different things that we do and that's all right. None is more important than another and that is so critical. If you're a tea helper cell, be the best tea helper cell you can be. And we all sort of do our thing. That's our, that's our sort of church government role. As far as specific qualifications of, of leadership, right? These are the qualifications of the person that's biblically called the bishop or the episkopos, right? There's some great principles for us, right? And we want to we live according to those principles, at least, I believe, to walk in the Spirit, to live in that sweet spot of God's blessing. Man, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the head of the church. We thank you that no man or woman is the head of the church, but you are. And that you said your church would stand and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for establishing this group of believers. We thank you for leading us and guiding us. And Lord, we pray that, that even as we move forward uh, in, in this year and beyond, should you tarry, Lord, we, we desire to be led by you according to your precepts. And we ask that you would just bless us, Lord. Give us wisdom, give us vision, give us clarity, give us discernment. Help us to walk in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We have an awesome, awesome week.